Hello, I'm Bill Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I am an ecologist, a professor of biology, and a Christian. I find great joy and harmony in my life exploring science, studying birds, and in following Jesus. I started Disciple Science to help people connect with God through nature. I'm glad you are here to join me and occasional guests as we explore the intersection of science and Christian faith. Now, let's get on with the podcast. One of the most remarkable patterns we see in human behavior is that all of us, whether we have a religious faith or not, behave in a way that is contrary to our core systems of morality. Within Christianity, we say we should love our neighbors and yet we hate them. We believe it's wrong to pursue materialism and we design our lives around acquiring more stuff. We decry the objectification of other humans and then we lust and oogle after other beings. We call this tendency to do what we know we shouldn't our sinful nature. Now, at Disciple Science, we're especially interested in how all Christians agree that God assigned humanity dominion, or what we call stewardship, a responsibility to look after nature, and yet we utterly fail to do so. And that's where this book comes in, The Gospel of Climate Skepticism by Robin Globus Veldman. It's an account of why Christians, despite our agreement of the biblical call to care, often do just the opposite. I asked Robin, who is an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas A&M, if she would be willing to come on and share with you some of what she discovered in her work, and she was gracious enough to do so. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Robin Globus Veldman. Well, welcome, uh, Robin Globus Veldman, to the Disciple Science Podcast. It's an honor to have you here today to talk about the work that you've done exploring some of the patterns behind uh, Christians and how we think about the topic of climate change and will help us understand why this, uh, this issue has been a source of, of tension and, and controversy and, and hopefully help us figure out a pathway to move, to move out of that, um, that historic tension. So uh, thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you with us. It's my pleasure. Yeah, it's harder to think of pathways out than it is to really map out the problem. But. <laughs> it is for sure. <laughs> Well, uh, we're having you on because you recently wrote uh, a great book called the Gospel, the Gospel of Climate Skepticism. I'm going to just hold my copy up here, which I had the, the, the opportunity to read over the past few months and found it just, uh, just deeply insightful and in that you dig deeper into some historic kind of just assumptions that all of this is driven by politics or it's driven by theology and, and the work that you did. Uh, will give us some great context into what's behind those historic ideas and and maybe some some very much novel ideas. Now you're a you're listed as a as a professor of religious studies. Is that right? What can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in this field of study? Um, yeah, it was sort of a long and winding path, but um, at some point I, I majored in environmental studies in college. Mm. I was super passionate about that mm -hmm. um, and. Um, you know, kind of meandered a bit after college trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, but at some point I just started noticing how, I was living in New Mexico at the time and just how people were kind of combining spirituality with environmental concern. And I just found it really intriguing, but I am more of an observer just by nature. And I think I wanted to understand it better um, mm -hmm. rather than to kind of, you know, get sucked in and start necessarily practicing myself. Um, and, then I learned that there was a program that focuses on the study of religion and nature uh, that was just starting up at that point at the University of Florida. And so it just seemed like a really good fit. Um, yeah, and I didn't, I had no idea what I was getting into. The academic study of religion is very different from the practice of religion. Sure, uh, and yeah, I didn't yeah. fully understand that when I started, <laughs> the, uh, you know, when I started my program, like I, I sort of got it, but I didn't really get it. So yeah, it was, I went into it not fully knowing what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. Great. And so you, you focus on, on Christianity and their views of, of the environment and nature in general, right? And can you, I don't know, this is a really big topic, but can you give us sort of a, a broad background? What, what are the general trends that we see in how different people groups, uh, religious groups, racial groups, 
um, socioeconomic groups respond to this big issue of, of climate change? Mm. Yes. Um, uh, so, well, um, if we're thinking about just in the U.S. context, uh, one mm, of the yeah. really interesting things that is that religion does matter quite a bit. It's um, the most influential factor, like if you look at um, like correlates of climate skepticism or climate acceptance, mm -hmm. politics is the most influential. So mm -hmm. that, and that one kind of overwhelms most of the other factors. Mm -hmm. um, but what I argue is that, um, particularly when it comes to politics, because politics and religion are so conflated in the United States currently, yep. um, especially for conservative Christians to some degree, um, it's to say that it's just politics is really ignoring a lot of what's going on because there's a lot of actual religious engagement mm -hmm. um, with climate change. Um, so, but the big, the big ones in terms of, you know, what seems to shape how Americans in particular think about climate change is um, politics and then gender. For some reason, women are less likely to be skeptical than men, or they're more likely to be concerned. They're apparent, you know, women in general are more risk averse than men. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a lot of different theories, but it's one of the findings. We don't exactly know why. Um, yeah. And then, um, and then religion, like religiosity is, is the third uh, one. And then there's some stuff related to like risk perceptions and, um, and um, you know, whether you've recently been through a heat wave that has like a short-term effect, but, um, but really politics, religion, and gender are the top three factors influencing how people think about climate change. Okay. So, and so this, I mean, this is really interesting right from the start, right? As we look at, um, at, at religion and politics, especially, um, we would think gender would be fairly equal there, at least as far as you've got males and females in different political parties and males and females in different religions. But within re highly religious groups, you've got really different disparities within, you know, sort of uh, black Christian communities and Hispanic com Christian communities and white Christian communities. Do we see this, um, this political uh, association is playing out in the same way across those different racial groups as well? Oh, that's actually a really good question. Um, and I haven't seen that much research on like conservative, like Orthodox Jews, for example, they're very yeah. religiously conservative, but I don't know how that plays out if at all with climate change yeah. Um, or yeah. So I can't say um, generally, and I'm not sure anybody has really looked into that. Um, there's been uh, of the research that's been done on religion, actually evangelicals have received quite a bit of attention because of their political influence. Um, and within that, I did some research recently and found out that when you break evangelicals down by um, their ethnicity or racial background, there is quite a gap between white evangelicals and evangelicals of color. Mm -hmm. um, and but there's a couple things going on, like evangelicals of color also tend to be younger and younger people are uh, younger evangelicals are a bit more open to climate change. So it, it, we're kind of waiting open to accepting, you know, consensus science. So we're, it's not fully clear what, you know, what exactly is driving that. Um, yeah, so that's yeah. something that I'm hoping that we'll get to find out. Yeah. And, and can you elaborate on what's driving the political association? I, I think well, we've even talked about this a little bit before on, on this podcast, but um, you know, there's the, the uh, inclination towards small government and maybe the inclination mm -hmm. toward uh, free market solutions to, to problems. Is, is, it, is it that simple? What else is behind the, the, the uh, conservative desire, maybe desire is the wrong word, but the, the conservative tendency to be more skeptical of, of climate change, or, or I should say human-caused climate change? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it gets to be a mouthful, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's two things going on. There's a lot of, in the book I tried to put together sort of a panoramic picture that was both historical and looking at the present moment. And that is really a challenge to, to get across succinctly. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, I did it like the best way possible or anything, but, but one of the things you, that we have to keep in mind, I think is the history of public religion, but especially political engagement on the part of evangelicals goes back to the late 1970s. So we have, you know, 80s, 90s, to, you know, and then, so it's been like 40, 50 years of this engagement. And during this time, 
evangelicals, but basically white evangelicals sort of got integrated more closely. They became the base of the Republican party. Um, And that's not like a, um, me as like a partisan person saying that, like everybody knows that's like, yeah, I know. Of course, it's not controversial. I'm not saying it it should be that way or it shouldn't be that way. It's just the way it is. Just the way it is, Um, right, yeah. Yeah, and because of that, what's really fascinating is that, you know, Americans in general have started to associate their identity with their political identity. It's become Mm. a really strong form of identity, not only for Republicans, but also for Democrats. But looking at the Republican side, there's been a lot of, you know, decades of integration where you have all of these, um, you know, kind of pro-business, like Republican side, or, you know, policy ideas that have started to, there's been decades of synergy between, you know, the religious side and the political side there. So, um, and I think you can't ignore that when looking at climate change, which first came on the public radar in, in basically in 1988, that was, there was like a Senate testimony about it, but really nothing much happened for, you know, on and on and on um, uh, into the, you know, the nineties and early two thousands, not much was happening. Um, or at least no like major international agreements. Obviously people were trying to make stuff happen through the governmental panel on climate change and um, you know, all of the like UN sort of affiliated organizations. Um, But that history I think is really critical because it created this um, time for organizations like the Acton Institute, which is big on like free market economics with Mm -hmm. kind of blending in faith to be able to create organization and organization like the Cornwall Alliance, which the -hmm. Cornwall Alliance is the main climate skeptic organization within evangelicalism. So it would, you know, if you ignore history, then you don't see the the decades and, you know, the year after year of work kind of integrating this um, small government vision with um, that, you know, was kind of a, both a political idea and favorable to many evangelicals. Um, and putting those two together worked really well also for people who are opposed to climate action because it being a big, enormous problem, it, mm. you know, I'm not a policy expert. But no, but yeah, it seemed like we, we default to, to government solutions when, when we talk about climate issues most often. So you can- yeah. Yeah, makes sense. It's hard to see it being fully addressed on an individual level just because there's so yeah. many issues of scale. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so that that basically put it in the crosshairs of, of people who had become really central to the like the policy ideas of the Republican yep. Party. And did you did you choose to study white evangelicals because they are the most skeptical group, or is there what drove you into the specific project that you that you took on? Oh yeah, well, it, no, it ended up there. I mean, I thought I was going to study religion, and I ended up so much more in, in like politics than I ever mm. thought was going to be. The case. <laughs> yeah, you know, I might have maybe I should have gotten a PhD in political science, like given where <laughs> I ended up. Um, but no, I mean, I went out to uh, to study um, the impact of end time beliefs, as and you know, if you've read the book. Um, mm-hmm. I there in the mid two thousands, like two thousand five, two thousand six, there were you know, there was a, a bunch of attention to this idea that the Bush administration's climate policy was, you know, they were kind of like foot dragging and like questioning, mm-hmm. you know, the Kyoto Protocol. Um, and um, Bill Moyers, the journalist, had this famous speech, you know, saying that, you know, the reason why this is happening is because of all of these Christians who believe in rapture. They don't care if the world burns. In fact, they're looking forward to it, you know, and mm-hmm. It was such an outrageous claim and it, it just was like one it was like the early days kind of of things going viral and it but it just kept circulating and <laughs> yeah. i you know i looked at it and i was like well it's not just bill moyers it's also al gore and um uh, so many other people some who are evangelicals themselves who have said that this is like the key factor the reason why evangelicals are not you know on board with this issue and it just kind of I don't know. I don't know how it is for other researchers, but it, it just like put a hook in me. And I was like, I want to understand yeah. this better. Is this really what's driving, what's driving this? Yeah. Like it, it just seemed like such a caricature caricature. And it was also so just salacious, you know, there's just something <laughs> about that idea where you're like, and I, 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 I tried to, to convey that in the book and I, I never feel like I quite could put my finger on the, the way 
from the environmentalist side, which since I was an environmental studies major, I feel like I'm, you know, kind of an environmentalist. Yeah. But there's like almost a joy in being able to like blame, like mm. that's who it is. And like, they're just crazy, you know? Right. And they're like, there's something like, I think in part it's because climate action is so complicated. Maybe you just want to be able to say mm. there's some specific group that's responsible, but there was just something weird about the the feeling that that, that whole conversation had that, that really stuck me in and made me want to understand it better. That's great. I mean, it's really compelling. Good for you for wanting to, dig a little deeper. I think I, I, even I, prior to really studying this in detail myself was, was compelled by that. Is that really, is that really what's driving this? Is that really what we believe? I mean, as a, as a young Christian before studying it in, in greater depth, trying to figure out if this is, this is what I'm supposed to believe and kind of coming to the conclusion that it's not. Um, but I was mm -hmm. fascinated by why, by why so many people do, but so um, elaborate then on, on, on how you did your work. Uh, where, where did you go? How did you find people to talk to? Um, and I, I'm really interested to hear about the conversations that you had, you know, as we tease apart what you found. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, part of my training in my PhD program was to, we were, there's been a lot of research on world religions in general and how mm -hmm. they shape environmental attitudes. It's something that most people never think about. It's like not on their radar at all, but you know, there's this little cohort of scholars who are thinking about it. You know, what does, you know, being a Buddhist, like, you know, all their values of interconnection and whatever, does that lead to more environmental behavior? Does it not? Um, so that was how I was trained, looking at all these different religious traditions and how they shaped environmental attitudes. Um, and one of the things that came out of that whole study was that um, people were looking too much at scripture and not looking at practice, like how people actually live out their traditions. Mm. Um, and so I, from the very beginning was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm going to like move past this um, analysis of, of just a scripture-based approach or like looking at how people make sense of sacred texts and go and talk to people in the field. Um, and so uh, I ended up, I was based at the University of Florida, which is like North Florida um, and Georgia was a pretty nearby location that wasn't within like the university bubble, mm. um, which has its own kind of distorting effect, right? <laughs> like mm -hmm. University yeah. towns are just not like your average town. They're not normal towns, right? Um, yeah. No. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, that's kind of how I ended up in Georgia. And um, I, one of the things that the first challenge I had when I got out into the field was identifying evangelical churches because I thought I knew what an evangelical was. And then I was like, wait, how do I find them? You know, like, how do I know which church is? There's so many Christian churches, which ones yeah. are evangelical and which ones are not. And so I just, I remember sending an email to one of my uh, committee members being like, okay, wait, how do I actually like figure out which ones are evangelical? Which is now is like, I, when I teach my classes, we spend time on like, okay, this is how the National Association of Evangelicals defines it. This is yeah. how, you know, some scholars define it. And there's like debate, it's debated and everything. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I eventually, um, you know, kind of, I pulled out the phone book, I created this list of, you know, oh, wow. you know here's, and it was, I, I tried to get churches that were in like, I was in a, local, a smaller town, but also ones that were rural and some that were in a larger um, city that were nearby to, you know, so it's not just like yep. all yep. the like rural churches or something. Yep. Um, and then I just started calling up pastors and saying, I, you know, had a research project and I kind of um, framed it as um, we're just, I'm really interested in hearing about your church's views or your views on social issues. Um, and I, I didn't say um, like, Hey, I'm a grad student. I'd like to talk about right. Change, right? Like <laughs> it just seemed like that wasn't the right way to start the conversation. Um, so we always talked about a bunch of other things before talking about climate change. Um, hmm. But that was kind of like how I opened the door to different conversations. Were they, were they all pretty open and happy to have you come in and, and have these conversations, or did you ever get anybody that was resistant to it? Oh yeah, no. I it's not like everybody said yes. Um, okay. And I also, you know, I, I'm clearly an outsider. There's, mm. you can hear it in my accent. You know, when you go to Georgia, I don't have a Georgia accent. So, and <laughs> or a Texan I don't know. Accent, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I may have a California accent. I don't know. But yeah, um, but yeah no, I just clearly was an outsider. Um, and even just in the fact that they didn't know me, because some mm. of the churches were in small towns, so they yeah. would know of somebody. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, no, I had people who were like, no, we're not interested. Um, 
but a fair number were happy to talk to me. And some I talked to the pastor, but they were not that comfortable having me do a focus group there. Like I'm guessing in some cases, just because like one pastor in particular, I remember he had just started. And I think he was like, I don't wanna, you know, give this impression, this is what I'm all about or something. So, um, so yeah, it, it definitely wasn't everybody. And okay. you have to get used to being almost like a, you know, a salesman in, in the sense that someone might slam the door in your face. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's in the end, I mean, people were, the people I talked to were all incredibly generous with their time. So that, Great. that was nice. Were, were you, uh, were you targeting white evangelical churches or did you also talk to, um, I would think in Georgia, you, I mean, and this is maybe a, uh, a trope, but I, you know, I've always been given the impression, you know, what's, I don't remember who we attribute for the quote, but that, you know, Sunday morning at 11 a.m. is the most segregated time of the, of the, of a given week. And that most churches tend to be kind of dominated by white communities or, or black communities. Did you talk to folks from both black and white churches or were you targeting more uh, white evangelicals? Yeah, no, I really wish I had. I talked to mostly white churches. I, okay. um, so I went with, and over the years, I've had plenty of time to kick myself for that decision. Um, but at mm. the time I was kind of like, well, I don't know what, I know what people expect relative to white evangelicals. So I can position my research relative to what, you know, has already been found yeah. versus black evangelicals. I didn't even really think of those terms in the, at the time, but like there was no research. So stupid, yeah. right? Like I should have right. just gone out and be like, <laughs> I'd love to talk to you, but I didn't. Um, and some of the Pentecostal churches I visited, um, Pentecostals are, I know that, mm. you know, there's different ways of grouping evangelicals, but um, political scientists and scholars of religion often tend to group evangelicals, charismatics, and Pentecostals under the evangelical category and fundamentalists yeah. as well. So those are the four groups that are usually considered evangelical, at least by scholars. Um, so the Pentecostal churches were more multiracial and I did visit a Seventh-day Adventist church, which is not evangelical, um, but it is mm. Protestant and really um, end time teachings are important for them. And they were fairly multiracial as well. Okay. Uh, but it's, I think what you're saying is, is true. I remember driving through the countryside and, and being like, oh, wow, there's, there's a church that's completely full. And it was all, you know, African-Americans and, and like just driving, you know, past on my way to these other churches. And, you know, I'm not from the South, so I wasn't fully um, attuned to those dynamics. And yeah, I, I'm sure everybody has like second guesses themselves, but I, I do wish that I had hmm. talked to people. I mean, it was actually hard enough to get into white evangelical churches. I'm sure, yeah. So I, I don't know how much luck I would have had, but I wish I had tried. Yeah. Well, well, we. I, I mean, that's a, a topic for maybe later on. As I went, as I read this, that was my biggest question. I would love for you or someone to replicate this study with with black evangelicals. I think from the past couple of elections, we've learned so much that that our religion does influence our identity and our politics, but the the black Christian church seems to be the most um, identity defying, uh, or what, one of the most, you know, and that they tend not to be, uh, politically conservative and yet tend to be very, you know, committed to their Christian beliefs. And so, um, how that influences their views on, on the environment, which sort of spans that would be a, a real interesting topic for yeah. future study. Yeah. The, what's crazy is that people don't ever, like part of the reason no studies have been done is the way that coding schemes work for these large surveys that people use to, you know, test their hypotheses, oh, don't separate black evangelicals, like they don't have a way of doing yeah. it. And so they've just been, they're lumped together with black Protestants, yeah. or sometimes I think they might just be kind of, you know, not included in the analysis. So it's yeah. really, yeah, I have the same questions as you. Like, oh, I, interesting. Yep. Anyone who's listening to this, <laughs> do that there project. Go. There we go. Next, somebody's dissertation for the future. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it sounds like you you were focused especially on on end times belief and and theology, and it was clear that you explored that topic. So, can you share with us what what did you learn? Is was that driving people to be apathetic about environmental concern, or or was it more complex? Yeah, um, well, it was it was the latter for sure. It was definitely more complex, yeah. as things always are when you go out and talk to people. It took yeah. a long time to be able to 
come up with any sort of summary statements. Um, when I talked to people, I definitely ran into people um, and I mentioned it in the book, like one woman at a Pentecostal church, I just was saying, yeah, I'm doing this research on the environment. And, you know, she immediately chimed in with like, yeah, the end times are coming. And like environmental degradation is a sign. I don't remember the exact words she used, but yeah, like, it, you know, it was just like that, that belief definitely exists. Um, but what I ended up deciding, and so I did um, focus groups and they were all located in, in Georgia. Um, so it's not like a nationally representative sample, but it's, you know, representative of different, um, at least different sized churches and different denominations. So not just all one denomination. Um, I always ran into, let me put it differently. I didn't always, like, it was common to meet at least one, if not a couple people at a particular focus group who were really excited about the end times. Like mm -hmm. they found meaning in it. They, mm -hmm. um, thinking about the idea of the rapture and the world, you know, the world to come, like, that was exciting to them. And um, I recognize that because before I started my PhD, you know, I hung out with a lot of environmental apocalyptics and I know that they mm. exist and they're excited about, to some extent, like, um, I think what people don't realize about apocalypticism is it's strangely hopeful in a, in a naive way, but like you imagine this other world coming and you think that it's gonna be better and that you just have to get rid of like the current, you know, mess and then it'll clear the way for something better. Oh, um, wow. yeah. And yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like now when I think back on that viewpoint, I think it's kind of horrifying because any kind of mm. societal, you know, instability is, is so, has so much potential for violence. And so often that is how, what happens. Um, but there is kind of, I don't know, um, I think people, especially young people, honestly, do get kind of excited about that. Mm. Um, there is, there's like a utopian ideal associated with apocalypticism. And yeah. I, I, I felt like I kind of saw that in some of the people that I talked to that, yeah. you know, they saw that the world was full of wickedness and sin and, and the idea that, you know, more, a better, a new, you know, new heaven and new earth was coming was more, uh, was appealing to them. Yeah. Um, but if you read the research on apocalypticism, like you pretty quickly realize, at least from an ethnographic perspective, it's very hard to sustain that level of intense belief over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, and so most people end up falling into this camp that I call them cool millennials in my book, but they end up being end time believers in the sense that, you know, they believe the Orthodox teaching that, that Jesus will return someday. Um, but they're not living their lives like as if that could happen at any moment. They're, they, they're mm. putting money in their bank accounts. They're like planning for the future. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not like, if you really truly believe that, Jesus is coming back, like that really changes your behavior. Sure. But, right, yeah. you know, the church, I'm, you know, I'm sure, you know, like, and then pastors told me this too, like, you know, live like he's coming today, plan like he's coming tomorrow. Like you have to imagine at least that the world is continuing. Otherwise it's, it becomes a self-defeating prospect. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, basically I ended up, what I ended up finding was that um, most people in most of the churches I visited were these people, I call, this group I call cool millennialists, millennialism being a term for belief um, mm. in the end times, I guess, essentially. Yep. There's a lot of, as you and others may know, <laughs> terminology associated with end time belief, like that, we, love our, we love our, yeah, our jargon. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Just try not having gone to seminary and trying <laughs> that stuff. It was a nightmare. I mean, I can only imagine it's hard. I mean, I've been in Christian circles my whole life. And as I started studying it academically, getting my head, I mean, even my first, this is something where the side note, but you know what I first, I've been at the university I'm at for 10 years and students would throw around terms that were totally foreign to me. And it, it took me a lot of flipping through dictionaries to figure out what in the world they're talking about. So I can only imagine that if you weren't raised in Christian culture, it would have been 10 times worse. So good, kudos yeah, to you really, for wading through it. It was confusing. And I think I focused uh, most of the, you know, people like Bill Moyers and whatever had talked about premillennialism being the, mm -hmm. the big, I don't know, boogeyman um, for environmental reasons, because I think that's the, you know, such a predominant strain, but 
there's, you know, that's not the only kind that's out there. And then trying mm. to figure, it's not like people have like a card printed, like, oh, I, you know, I'm certified as like an all millennialist. So trying to, you know, do I look at the individual or do I look at the church and how do I, you know, do I make my own judgment based on the church's statement if they don't directly say that part gets really complicated. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it, so I basically found that most people were, um, not, I made sort of an ethnographic characterization of it, which does not conform necessarily to how it looks in theology textbooks. Sure. Um, but I said, there's people who are super excited about the end times. And they, if you talk about climate change, you're like, yes, that is another sign that the Lord is coming soon. Um, and so they do. Does that mean that they're, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but does yeah. that mean they're eager to bring about climate change? Like, are they trying to amplify it or are they just not regretting that it's happening yeah i think it was more in a passive sense okay. i mean nobody feels like they have power regarding climate change whether they are mm. accepted or not you know yep. so it's just like i'm living my life and if if you know god wants that to happen then it's going to happen okay. but it wasn't i mean what what could you do if you were trying to make climate change happen like well, you, you come across the cynics that say, you know, drive your SUV, drive your truck, doesn't matter, uh, you know, let's burn, let's do the coal power plants and whatnot. And so I just, not that they could single-handedly drive it, but that it, and this is maybe me being a little bit cynical and from, you know, years of, of wrestling with Christians who are skeptical that it's um, really discouraging to me to, to hear language that is that flippantly um, yeah. dismissive. Uh, it, it almost seems like they are trying to make it worse just to kind of put their thumb in the eye of, of environmentalists that they're trying to, that they see as an antagonist. But yeah, I do actually do think that that is kind of where it comes from. I don't think there that it's the end time beliefs that are driving the environmental no, attitude. Yeah, I think no, the environmental I, attitudes that are driving yeah. the end time beliefs. Yeah. Like, so, and I actually didn't run into anybody like that, but I know they exist. Like, you know, see people rolling coal and you're like, yeah, that <laughs> that's out there. Um, yeah. But no, for me, it was the people that I ran into. I think, um, you know, when you're really in the sway of end time beliefs, you tend to be a little bit disconnected from the day to day because there's just not as much um, attractive, it's not as attractive to invest in like politics and you know, mm -hmm. all the like the little things that people can do to try to like change society when you, if you think like it's all gonna be swept away. So at least the people I met, I didn't, I didn't feel like they were as engaged um, yeah. politically. But then on the other side, most people I met who were what I called cool millennialists, they were you know, they believed, you know, that Jesus was come, was going to come back, but they, you know, said, we know not the day or the hour. So we're just going to, you know, live our lives and be as, you know, um, as faithful as possible and hope that, you know, and, and that's all we can do as Christians. Um, and they, on the other hand, um, you know, while the, the hot millennialists were like, yeah, climate change is a sign that Jesus is coming back soon the cool millennialists were like, yeah, I don't think so, no. Like, <laughs> it's all just like scientists after grant money and, you know, mm. they would bring up climate gate, this controversy from around that time. My field yeah. research was in 2011 and 2012. So okay. it was like um, at a particular moment, but um, so, so to me, I was like, okay, well, these are the people that everybody who is talking about end time beliefs being a driver of climate skepticism. This is who they're talking about. They're talking about premillennialists. And I went out and I talked to all these premillennialists and like very few of them were giving end time beliefs as a reason to be, you know, mm -hmm. to believe that climate change, we shouldn't take it seriously. Okay. Um, and so I was like, I think something else is going on. And I couldn't figure out what it was for a while. I was just like, okay, I just had all these focus groups and like, everybody's a skeptic pretty much. Like I then, percentages of skeptics in my focus groups was quite high. And ultimately, when I started in the field, I, I thought my, I thought of the people that I was talking to as evangelicals, just like white evangelicals. Um, but as I read more into um, the literature, like political science literature on the mobilization of evangelicals and, and just different ways that surveys have of, of dividing up evangelicals, I decided um, I realized that the people I was talking to fit the profile of a subgroup of evangelicals called traditionalist evangelicals, who mm -hmm. I think are basically the core of 
the Christian right, um, which is not all of evangelicalism. Like obviously a lot of times people get confused and think that, and I myself thought that these were equivalent, but no, there's a Christian right, which is like the politically, you know, mobilized on the Republican side arm of the, of, you know, the broader evangelical tradition. Then there's like evangelicalism as a whole, which is not like, you know, fully committed to one, you know, particular political ideology. So the people I talked to were um, much more politicized, I guess I would say, or um, they, you know, they were, they were highly devout. They were, um, uh, they were, I'm trying to like think back to the exact criteria of, of tra traditionalist evangelical. Um, oh, and they believe that um, critically <laughs> to what I ended up finding that um, sort of American culture is heading in a, in a bad direction. It's being like led away from Christianity. Um, yeah, so talk about that. Your your um, discussion of the sort of the, the view of, of a culture war um, that was was quite fascinating to read. It's something I had experienced, but I don't think I'd ever read it from an outsider's perspective or some, from an academic perspective, I, I should say. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, tell us about that, about what people shared with you on, on that subject. Yeah, so, um, and it, yeah, it's funny that, <laughs> to, it's interesting to hear that, hear you phrase it that way, because I, I had a couple of Christians say the same thing to me that, you know, I've talked to like, and to me, it was a surprise because I didn't know that the, that worldview existed at all either. I was just like, mm -hmm. yeah, we're all friends, right? Like, <laughs> um, so, um, so when I would talk about, when I would, you know, in the focus groups bring up, and well, first we started the focus groups, I would say, you know, what um, does your church contribute to society? This is just a way of breaking the ice, kind of getting to know each other. And then I would say, what challenges does the church face? And I started hearing about all these challenges that I had never even thought about, like, oh, the Bible's been taken out of public schools and we're not allowed to pray. And, you know, all these um, things that just weren't on my radar. Um, and so, you know, but I didn't really think much of it at the time when I, as it connected to environmental issues, like it just seemed like, okay, that was like the opening of the focus group. Um, but then I, as I went back, um, I noticed that that kind of similar sense that um, Christianity was under attack and that it was, you know, there are these elites or secularists or, you know, that people had different names for these groups, but, you know, are trying to push Christianity out of the public square, public sphere. Um, I, I noticed that it was there, you know, in pretty much all of the focus groups. Um, and it was um, also, it, people would use that same language when they were talking about climate change. So I started to realize, okay, there's like, there's a sense of anger. There's an undertone of anger, I would say. Um, and, and that carried over to when people were talking about climate change. Um, and so then in reading, um, you know, I went back and, and read this like classic study on evangelicalism, American evangelicalism embattled and thriving. And it was like, oh, I recognize this portrait. This is exactly what I'm hearing people say is they, they feel that they're embattled. And, and I learned that this was a broader narrative that's common in evangelicalism or throughout evangelicalism, but particularly I think American evangelicalism. I, I, I don't mm -hmm. think yeah. it's necessarily a global phenomenon. It is specific. It seems to be specific to American history and America or evangelicals sense of um, having a sort of special place in America, mm -hmm. not, not because they're the only ones that are special, but that Christianity has a special place in American culture. And so evangelicals yep. as, you know, um, you know, practicing Christians carrying on the Orthodox tradition have this special place. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I, and, and the, I think the, the classic connection of that embattled mentality, like a sense of being embattled with secular society, connecting that to climate change was when um, people would just say, um, like, environmentalists are trying to deny my worldview. Like, I see that I'm, I'm trying to think of the exact quotes, but like, that's why I usually have like a PowerPoint slide up with me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, you know, they're trying to take, they're like, you know, they already tried to take it away with evolution and now they're trying to take away, like evolution takes, you know, undermines Christian teachings about the origins of humanity, climate change undermines Christian teachings about the end times. Mm -hmm. um, and so instead of it being like, I don't care about climate change because I see, because I think the end is coming, people were actually like, I don't care about climate change because I see what you're doing and it's just 
a, mm -hmm. a ploy to try to replace Christian teachings about the end times. Yep. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's um, really an interesting in it. And I just, it seemed like there's a, um, a willingness in certain Christian circles to see science. Uh, I mean, I, I think that it, we've got baggage around the evolution debate that it's, almost that same view as like, I see what you're doing and you're trying to uh, redefine my narrative about the beginning. And now it's, now you're trying to redefine my narrative about the end, end of time, I suppose. So, um, I, it, yeah, it, it, this helps us see that it's really not necessarily about the science, right? I mean, it, we, we've talked very little about the science so far and, and probably won't even get to it because that's, that seems to be um, minimally why people talk about their their skepticism. Did you have people talk about the the science, or uh, you know what whether they could trust the scientists, or was that an issue issue that came up very often? Yeah, you know, actually, I did, um, and mm -hmm. so I kind of divided in. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if this is the best division, but like secular reasons for skepticism and religious reasons for skepticism, mm -hmm. and I felt like they really dovetailed together. It, they're almost inseparable. Okay. Um, in the sense that you, the reason it was so easy to dismiss climate change as part of some secularist attempt to undermine Christian teachings was that they also had felt they had all this evidence that the scientists were like cooking the books and mm -hmm. just in it for the grant money and Al Gore is a jerk and all these other things. Mm -hmm. Al Gore, it's funny, studies have found that Al Gore is like the number one most mentioned um, figure when it comes to climate change, um, mm -hmm. not within evangelical circles, but it, it, it totally held true in my um, focus groups as well. You know, the, the finding was like, yes, his name was brought up more than anybody else's. No, that's my experience as well. It's not true anymore because the students were too young to, yeah. or at least my current students were too young to remember it. But until I don't know, 2015, I couldn't talk about climate change without Al Gore coming up. And it was just a sense that, you know, I, I don't like that guy. And I can't conceive of a world in which he is right and I am wrong. He's wrong about everything. So he must be wrong on this as well. It was, it was almost, it was spiteful, um, you know, hatred for, for Al Gore and Bill Clinton. And that it was like, he just must be wrong on principle, uh, which just right. was frustrating to hear students explain you know, talk in those terms. It's like, oh, can we talk about the evidence as well or, or just who's taking sides? But interesting yeah. to hear that, that you found that as well. I sort of take that as evidence of some kind of a framing effect that, mm -hmm. you know, this is coming through the media and not through, and I noticed this happens, like, I wanna say, I know this happens with, certainly with liberal circles as well, that you start just looking at who somebody is and, you know, can I trust this person? I'm not going to listen to anything they say if I, you know, if I don't trust them, if they're not one of my tribe. And I think people do that on both sides. Um, and it's a real problem because if you're just looking at who somebody is, you're never evaluating their argument. But yep. at the same time, one of the tactics that people use to try to, it's a primary tactic to undermine what people like Al Gore and others have said is ad hominem attack. So you're attacking their person and trying to make them seem untrustworthy. And so when you hear that somebody has such strong feelings about Al Gore, just like why Al Gore, you know, he's like a nerdy PhD. Yeah. <laughs> like right. there's something to me there's, and I know, I know people who feel that way. So it like, and maybe they would deny that it, it, it's coming to them somehow through, through like the media, but I, I suspect that there's something going on there, something more going on. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, there's some more moral psychology around, you know, th these people that I agree with on this moral topic, whether it's, you know, whatever Christian social issue is, is hot that day, you know, I, I, if I agree with them on, on this thing, they must be right about most of the other things they're covering as well. And I so disagree with Al Gore on, you know, the, the political issues that I must disagree with him on everything else as well. And so, I, I mean, I have, um, put too much time trying to figure this out uh, without doing the, the research that you have, but it's, uh, there's a lot. Well, that's the thing on. we take these cognitive shortcuts because it is a lot of work to try yeah. to, I mean, I don't have time to go research every single issue myself, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so like, yeah, you just go for like, okay, I trust that person or I trust that media source or whatever, like that's the yeah. shortcut. It's yeah. inevitable. <clears throat> just 
100%. And I think it, it works pretty well if you have sources that are good. But right yep. now we have a lot of misinformation. Yep. Um, and so then it's very easy to sway people because they've turned off their critical thinking and they're just like looking at whether a source is trustworthy. Yeah, which is uh, where I'd like to go next. Where you talk about sources that we trust and, and the media as an important avenue where we get our information from. You had some really interesting insights to talk about Christian media and their role and the um, how, how they talked about climate. What what did you find in that arena? Um, yeah, so I um, just to go back one step, I guess I eventually ended up deciding. Um, so when when I talked to people um, in the focus groups, they were like really kind of yeah. I had that there was that sense of frustration that was palpable and was connected to climate change. And eventually I did a focus group with Seventh-day Adventist Adventist and like didn't have, feel that same sense of embattlement. And so that's what kind of made me realize there's something specific going on in evangelical subculture. Um, And it was only later kind of after I'd finished my field work, I was, I thought I was pretty much done. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna write out my concluding chapter (laughs) to this and, you know, turn it into a book and send it off. Um, And I started I was like, well, I've made this claim that there's an embattled mentality. Um, and why don't I look at what sort of evangelical leaders are saying and see if they're saying anything about climate change and see mm-hmm. if it's connected to, you know, does it reflect this same embattled mentality? Or at first, I, yeah, I didn't know what I was going to find, but I was like, well, we'll just see if this is reflected at the elite level as well, because there, in the mid 2000s, there had been this whole campaign to try to get evangelicals concerned about climate change, you know, starting in 2005, 2006, there was the Evangelical Climate Initiative that took off. And mm-hmm. um, so there had been a lot within evangelical circles. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I'll just go see what the proponents and opponents of this idea is and like, see if it kind of fits within my framework. Um, and so the Cornwall Alliance, which I mentioned earlier, has a bunch of, um, it's the main evangelical climate skeptic organization, and they have created all these declarations and documents that people sign on to, you know, if they agree that climate change is not a problem or if, you know, addressing climate change will hurt the world's poor. That's their big argument. Um, Even though in fact, addressing climate change is very beneficial to the poor and that's the primary reason to do it. Um, So, um, so I, you know, I just, I would take the names of the people who signed on, especially if they're well-known and just see what they had said about climate change. And I started realizing like, oh, and this is, shows my naivete because I just didn't know the Christian world well, but I was like, oh yeah, these guys, they all have radio programs, okay. And then I started looking at their radio programs like in their archives, I mean like, oh, they're talking about climate change a lot, surprising. Um, And oh, they're saying just what I heard my informants say, you know, the people that I talked to in the field, like that's oddly familiar. And um, so that, yeah, it just was like, I thought I was just wrapping up the book and then I was like, okay, no, there's there's way a bigger piece of the story here. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, that's how I kind of started looking at what people were saying in Christian media, particularly in print or not print, um, radio and radio. television, yeah. Okay, great. I, it, and that, that's that was a, a novel idea to me, but it, uh, it makes sense. Um, and it'd be interesting to to look at uh, rates of, of Christian media consumption. Yeah, you know, yeah, I have and, some stats on that actually. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah. Please, uh, please share. I, I'm not one of those people who can quote stats reliably from memory, so yeah, yeah. decided to look them up. So, a court. Um, oh, I didn't write down the source here, but it's the. Um, I think it's the National Association of Religious Broadcasters has done surveys, um, which is like for the uh, affiliated with the um, NAE. Um, 90% of evangelicals consume evangelical media each month and one in five Americans consumes this kind of media on a daily basis. So like 20% of Americans, Mm, uh, which is pretty significant. Um, And then another study from the study that I mentioned earlier by Christian Smith, he did this national survey and then followed up with interviews and, and the people that he interviewed um, the, they, was it them or, um, oh yeah, the average hours that evangelical respondents spent listening to Christian radio was 6.9 per week. So it was quite wow. a bit, I, yeah, mean, which is, I mean, I don't know, like that seems like a lot. And <laughs> it may, have it on in the background or something, but yeah. It does right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, so, and, and even, you know, I've had a couple of years to think about this now, now that like the material is out there and 
realize that even if you are not listening to radio, like oftentimes you're influenced by the people around you who listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, your pastor who listens to it. pastors, listen to radio even more so than do, um, your average, like, yep. um, you know, church goer. So it can, it's kind of, I started off thinking of it as almost like this propaganda effect that like, you know, you're just hearing it on the climate change isn't real on the radio and the people mm-hmm. are like, okay, climate change isn't real. Um, but I think it's almost like that's too simplistic. I think there that media gets kind of embedded in your social world in a way that's very hard to extricate yourself from or even think critically about. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's more complicated. Yep. Well, it, it'd even be interesting to, as I think about Christian media today is different from what it was 10 or 20 years yeah. ago in that we have, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, is a podcast like this for, for me as a Christian who, you know, if I can out myself, I'm sort of politically independent and certainly environmental in, in my leanings on those issues. I always felt out of place listening to Christian media, but now we've got these independent sources popping up in podcasts that give voice to uh, people that that are more in line with with my way of seeing things, you know, and so I've got access to somebody that I can resonate with. Whereas 20 years ago, most Christian radio would be like, mm, you know, I'm kind of on board with this topic, but not that one. And so it, it'll, I mean, that probably just further segregates us and puts us into our echo chambers, which might be more problematic. But at, at least from my perspective, the evolution of media has has made Christian media more appealing to me, or at least my corner of it. So I don't know if that's every issue, because one of the things that I've realized is the more you're around people who disagree with you, the more you have to think about your views. And I think part of the problem is we, the more siloed you get, the less you have to think critically and the more vulnerable you are to, to being persuaded by bad information. Um, So I think it's exciting to see what will happen. The ownership of media and Christian media is not representative of the views of evangelicals as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so they actually kind of reinforce some of the dynamics that um, keep evangelicals apart or like basically like if you do studies of what comes across in evangelical media, like on the news talk programs, for example, they're mm-hmm. like virtually all politically conservative and that's not what all evangelicals are but all the radio programs are, right? So like there isn't a space, right? And, and I talk to people who are familiar with that industry and it's not like you can just go start a program, you know, with your like your environmental show, like no one's gonna give you your time on American America Family Radio, right? Like it's just <laughs> not gonna happen. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it'll be interesting to, I think it's, I think it's a really good thing. I think yeah. I do like competition of ideas is important. Yep, yep. Well, I, I know this is be, will be pure speculation to, to look into the crystal ball, but you know, it seems like American evangelicalism is going through a lot of changes right now, at least in, at least in, in the outwash of the presidential election and the reconciliation around some of the, the history with, with race. Um, and it, it, it just seems like we're at a big transition point right now can is is climate change and environmental issues playing a role in that uh and can we are are we seeing a a genuine coming to grips with climate change in the in the near-term future say the next five years or do you feel like we're going to continue to get more um is the right going to continue to dig in their heels and insist this is not um a genuine concern yeah it's just so hard to say i always try to be like well we don't know Um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah which we don't but um i'll I'll just say it i have a, a lot of hope when i see the the black christian church that is breaking the norms of what christianity has to be there's been an assumption for too long that Christians have to be uh, politically right-wing. And I think um, we're starting to see that doesn't have to be the case. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that Christianity will become uh, certainly not its own political party, but, but more apolitical. That's, but that seems like an unrealistic hope because it's so entrenched right now, but that we can learn to um, 
you know, to take these issues uh, topic by topic instead of segregating them into uh, these false dichotomies that align with, with political parties. So that's what I would argue for, but I don't know if that's practically realistic or, or, or what would drive that pattern. Um, so again, I, I know that you can't say with any, with any certainty, but I'm just curious from someone who's studying it in greater detail than I am, if you see any, what, what, what way the tide is, is pushing things right now. I think young people have a huge role to play. Mm. Um, and I think that not only, I mean, of course, young people are the future, um, literally, but their participation in churches and their ability to, like one of the broader patterns that's happening in America right now is, is secularization and mm -hmm. the decline of churches, um, it, you know, all, across all, across the spectrum, but it's hitting evangelicalism as well. And politicization is like, one of the major reasons probably like yep. people are turned off by the by the way that politics and religion have become conflated and they feel like it's not genuine anymore to their faith um and so i think there's leadership is going to need to recalibrate whether that bargain is worth it i i understand even if i don't support the i understand you know that you might at some point be like okay we're going to make this political alliance because we're going to do good things through it. I, I'm sure that was the hope. Um, but it is coming at such a cost, even to the, the core mission at this point that you have to wonder if it's a self-defeating strategy. Um, so, and I think younger people are growing up in a world, in a, in a, in a country that's way more, multiracial it's just a way you know it's, it's a much 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 different country than it was in like 1950 even if you just look at demographic trends you know and and people are okay with that it's it's not like the the same world it was in 1950 um and so nevertheless of course older generations tend to kind of have control over all social movements right like or at least ones that have been around for as long so mm -hmm. so yeah we're at an inflection point and the, the question is whether there's a graceful transition or kind of like a mm. don't let the door hit you on the way out kind of <laughs> transition. We'll see. Yep. Yeah. Well, this has been really great. Thanks so much for, for coming on. I, again, really appreciated your book. Uh, anybody that really wants to understand, as I did, why Christians continue to be the predominant skeptics of climate change, um, the gospel of climate skepticism is a great place to start. Uh, Robin, can you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on now and or uh, where our audience can find you if, if they're interested in, in reaching out or, or uh, seeing what you're working on next? Yeah, um, I mean, I am on Twitter. I actually had to write down my Twitter handle because I don't ever like use it as an address. It's at Robin G. Veldman. Um, so yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm not like super active, as you can tell. Um, it's not like, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm one of those people who believes that you need to be able to moderate your conversation for who you're talking to and Twitter doesn't allow you to do that. And mm -hmm. I don't like it. So yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think it's very important for like the social world that you don't say everything to everybody and, and you know, whatever. Anyway. Um, so yeah, I am on Twitter. Um, I, I am looking at, I'm actually trying to understand, um, how, uh, I'm looking at the intersection of Christian nationalism and anti-environmentalism. So hmm. even broader than the evangelical sphere, there's so much, so much of what I saw in the evangelical world, I think is actually not coming necessarily from pastors or, you know, people like Chuck Colson and um, you know, Pat Robertson, but like coming from talk radio that is kind of Christian inflected, like, hmm. um, so, and I think Rush Limbaugh is one of those folks and, um, so is Glenn Beck. So mm -hmm. I've been looking in particular, I've been focusing on Glenn Beck and trying to understand what he says about climate change and what he says about religion and how that has shaped the American public's understanding of themselves. And, mm -hmm. and also of course, climate change is kind of my focus. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a, a, an important topic. I'll be interested to see, see what you find, so. Well, thanks again for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and thanks again for sharing your research with us. It's a, a great insight and hopefully we can use it to uh, hopefully deal with some of these tensions and get to a point where, where Christians can, can take the, uh, the call to, to stewardship, as, as we say, uh, a little bit more to heart. So 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a, anybody who writes a book knows it like is so, we appreciate so much anybody who like actually reads it. It's just like <laughs> such a pleasure to, to talk to somebody about it. And yeah, just, it's been fun. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Disciple Science Podcast. At Disciple Science, we believe that integrating science and Christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of God. We produce this podcast and our videos to help you connect with God through nature. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit based in St. Paul, Minnesota. And if you want to support us and help us make more videos and podcasts, you can give by visiting our website at disciplescience.com. I want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode and for composing our theme music. I'm Dale. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon.